Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Many of you know me well, or you've followed me on social media and understand and realize that I love the game of golf. It's an extension of uh, my athletic background in basketball and, and now having a, the ability to focus on uh, a game that brings myself and, and my oldest boy a lot of joy, which is where we get a chance to spend a lot of time together. Today's guest is someone that I had a chance to meet four or five years ago uh, at the opening of Gamble Sands, a great golf course in the middle of Washington, Brewster, Washington, uh, the designer, the architect of that golf course, he's created a number of phenomenal courses across not only the country, but across the world. Names of courses that you might recognize, such as Bandon Dunes on the Southern Oregon coast. None other than David McClay Kidd. David, thanks for joining today. And, and how goes life in Bend, Oregon, which is where you're headquartered now? Well, life is pretty good in Bend, Oregon. The, the only downfall for Bend, Oregon uh, is maybe a bit like Spokane, is uh, everyone who's from Seattle and San Francisco and LA with this uh, virus wants to be somewhere kind of rural. So Bend, Oregon is covered in license plates from out of state. Uh, so we're pretty busy. Uh, you wouldn't know there was a, a pandemic going on. The river's full of floaters. Uh, the hiking trails are full. Uh, I don't know where all these people are staying, but they're not at my house, thankfully. <laughs> well, hopefully you and your family are keeping yourselves safe and healthy. And you're also able to, uh, I'm not sure, maybe pick up some more work or, or look at some potential work. Because in the world of, of golf course design and architecture, which I'm fascinated to hear more about it, I'm sure that the process from initial phone conversation with a, whether it's a club owner or a private developer that has some land that wants to build something special and unique, they, they reach out to a number of guys like yourself. What is the initial process like and what are the steps to creating uh, a very unique and world-class golf course like you, you are a part of many times? Well, our, our business or, or the business is probably in two parts. There's the original works where you're building an entirely new golf course like Gamble Sands. Uh, and then there's the remodel, renovation, alteration side of the business. Uh, and, you know, that's completely, uh, it's a very different animal. Uh, I've concentrated much of my career in, in original works and new builds. Uh, and over the 30 years I've been doing it, uh, much of the work comes from referrals. Uh, someone talks to someone who knows someone who knows me. Uh, and so very often I get a phone call and it's, you know, my buddy so-and-so knows so-and-so that knows you. And I played your club in Oregon or Hawaii or wherever, Washington. And I really loved it. And I'd like to uh, meet you and talk about an idea I've got. So usually it's very embryonic. Sometimes they are talking to more than one person, but I've done a bunch of projects where they never talk to anyone else. You know, I, I got involved very early on when it was really embryonic uh, and you follow these projects through. Having done a couple of dozen of them in, in those 30 years, 
I know that the timeline from that first phone call to opening day is almost always five years, believe it or not. It's very rarely the two years that the guy thinks it's going to be. Uh, and occasionally it can be 10 years and it's a different guy. Uh, one of the analogies I often use is building a golf course is a bit like a horse race where you've got a bunch of horses and a bunch of jockeys and the gate opens on, on that first phone call and off they go. And you don't know if you're on the right horse or you're the right jockey on the wrong horse. But quite often, a lot of these projects, uh, the, the horses and the riders go around the track and the horses die, the, the rider falls off, and the guy who eventually crosses the line is not the guy who started on the same horse. So we've done a bunch of projects where we picked it up halfway along. Sometimes it took so long that the original architect did actually die. Uh, we did one project in LA where Arnold Palmer was the original architect. It hadn't been built yet and a decade went by and then of course uh, Arnie passed uh, and the, the, the client was left like, oh, who am I gonna hire now? And, and we jumped on that horse and we got it across the finish line. So uh, it's a real mix and match of, of different things. You, you mentioned kind of uh, relationships and, and the, a network of, of the world of golf and design and, and starting a new course. And it's, I can imagine it's very similar to uh, the world that I come from in basketball. So coaches kind of networking with each other to learn stuff, maybe hire somebody when they get a new position in, in a new organization. With you, you kind of took a relationship, obviously, from your father, from what I know. And, and he was a head group greenskeeper at Glasgow or excuse me Glen Eagles Golf Club and so I would imagine you really learned a passion for the game of golf and what to look for and and what can be successful and what is unique and what golfers really want in addition to what makes a golf course I would imagine healthy how did you take that learning curve from your dad and really kind of build your own passion into it into a career well, my, my dad, uh, who's in his uh, late 70s now, uh, got into golf as a kid in Scotland in the 50s uh, and started to work on a golf course when he was just a young teenager, and he loved the game. He was a great golfer uh, most of his life. He was a low single-digit golfer. Uh, he worked on golf courses, so he played the game. He studied the game. He loved the history of the game. Uh, and he loved the technical parts of it, the how to grow grass, how to uh, be sustainable, how to uh, not use inorganics, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, how, how to get uh, the environment to be in balance. And I, I learned all that by osmosis. I was right there at his side, and he was in Scotland with all of his friends and mentors from St. Andrews and Turnbury and Carnoustie, he was at Glen Eagles. So all these guys were around me as a kid and I was just sucking all this information up. So as I went to college in London uh, and then started out uh, into the golf business, the thing that enthused me most was not maintaining a golf course, but actually building one. I wanted to take all of that passion my dad had for the game and actually be creative with it. As a superintendent, you rarely get to be creative, certainly in a big way. You know, superintendents might get to make some relatively minor changes to a golf course, but they don't, you know, they're not designers or builders. 
So that's what my passion really was. So I took all of that uh, and, and focused on that. And my big break came in the early 90s. Uh, a guy from Chicago had uh, decided he was going to build a Lynx course in America. Uh, and uh, sorry, phone's ringing. Okay. Uh, and decided that's a good thing when the phone rings. You know, sure. That might be that guy. <laughs> The five-year clock might be just starting, right? Yes. <laughs> or it could be another, uh, your car warranty is running, it's expiring. Can we help you? <laughs> Who knows? So I, the, the story of Bannon Dunes was that Mike Kaiser, the guy that was the, the visionary and the money behind Bannon Dunes, really gravitated to my father first. He, it was my father that, that Mike saw all of this knowledge of golfing. And he assumed that the apple hadn't fallen far from the tree. And the son was so into design and construction that he hired me on the basis of all of my father's lifetime of knowledge in golf. So you're right. You know, my father has been my coach my whole life. You know, everything that I've learned was based on stuff that he had learned from a lifetime of golf in Scotland. I love hearing the passion and the knowledge of, of father handing down uh, that information and that passion to a son and you running with it, but in a slightly different direction and having tremendous respect. Two, two names of courses that you mentioned there. One I've had the opportunity to be a part of and that was, or be, a, be able to go travel to and play a number of times. Uh, and that's Bandon Dunes. I've never had a bad experience. It's, it's uh, for any golfer who's listening to this, it must be on your bucket list. It, it is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then the St. Andrews name that you mentioned, you, if I'm not mistaken, created the seventh course at the home of golf. How, how much pride do you have in the fact that you were a part of the home of golf? Yeah, that, that, that still makes the hairs of my neck stand up. Uh, and the, the St. Andrews has had golf for 600 years uh, and they build a new golf course about once every century, whether they need it or not. Uh, and so to say that it's a chance in a lifetime is actually an understatement. It's a chance in three or four lifetimes, given it's once every hundred years. Uh, I'm not sure that there could be ever another golf course built at St. Andrews. Certainly, even a hundred years from now, it's hard to know where it would be uh, because most of the land around the town that's on the coast already has golf on it. Uh, it was a huge thing. I mean, it's a long story to tell, but the, the short version, I went through about a year, maybe a year and a half selection process. The, the original list included, you know, Jack Nicklaus and, you know, every famous golf designer on planet Earth and little old me. Uh, and the day that I was awarded the, the contract by the Lynx Trust and the RNA, I drove back to my parents' house in the middle of Scotland, about 45 minutes away from St. Andrews. And I walked into uh, the family room and my dad sat in his big chair and I said, Dad, I, I didn't get it. Uh, and he said, oh, you know, well, you tried your best. And then a big smile appeared on my face. I said, nope, we're going to build the seventh golf course at St. Andrews. And my dad just started crying, you know, to think that he had begun his journey in golf in the 50s uh, and made such an imprint on his own son that our family name could sit at the home of golf for the rest of the time. That was immediately apparent to both of us. That's 
That's phenomenal. I can only imagine there was a huge sense of pride for both of you guys, as well as, as other members of your family to be a part of that and see that happen. Obviously, that's kind of a, a national course. You're, you, you've traveled all around the world creating courses in different pockets of the world. Uh, we touched on, on Band and Dunes. Uh, we touched on Gamble Sands in the middle of Washington. When somebody calls you and says, hey, look, I've got a piece of land that I'd like to build into a golf course, what are the biggest things that you look to hear from in describing that land? And then how do you try to separate yourself maybe from some of the other designers or architects that the landowner is reaching out to? Uh, you know, there's, uh, I always think that there are three key ingredients to every project. Uh, the first one is obviously the piece of land that they're looking at. Is that, does that piece of land speak to me? You know, is it, does it have some potential that I can, see that I could gravitate to. And that doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, a thousand acres of sand dunes on the Oregon coast. It, it might not be that. It could be 150 acres uh, of, of pasture land uh, on the edge of a major city. But for all sorts of dynamic reasons, one way or another, I can see potential. So that piece of land needs to have potential that I can gravitate to. That's ingredient one. Ingredient two is I have to have that sort of creativity to be able to bring it to, to the party. I, I have to be able to dream something up and be able to deliver it. Uh, and then third of all, you need a client who's, who's got it, you know, who understands. They've got the resources that they can bring to bear. Uh, they can go get the permits. They have the right people around them. And they themselves are going to be good collaborators. You know, there's no doubt that some potential clients might have all the other ingredients a great site lots of money i can see creativity but we just aren't gonna jive you know me and that particular individual are just not gonna see eye to eye and that's maybe just like basketball where you could be a great player and you just don't get it with that coach uh, and that's a similar thing I, i've worked on projects uh, where you know, I, I, it was tough. You know, you're, you're not enjoying it. It's this every day is tough. You've got this conflict going on between me as the architect and that owner, and I'm trying my best to work my way through it. I, and every client says to me, I want band and dunes, you know, I want to build band and dunes and they don't really appreciate that band and dunes is a sum of three things. It's the site, the architect and Mike Kaiser. That owner, he really, really gets it. As you well know, you go there, that place is him. That, that is what he wants out of a golf resort. That He wants it to be simple. He wants, to, he wants a cold beer and a cheeseburger, and he wants it five minutes after he gets off the 18th fairway. And he wants a hot shower and a comfortable bed. He doesn't need a spa. He doesn't need you know, all sorts of other paraphernalia. He wants beautiful golf courses, and he wants things as simple as he can get them. And I love the comparison uh, in that three-point checklist that you mentioned, because you're right, it is so true and similar to a, a, a good basketball player and a coach in an organization being aligned for the same things. And when that happens, there's, there's success right around the corner. You started with, uh, you mentioned the Bandon Dunes project, and, and I love that course. 
the other couple courses of yours that I've played, Tethro might be the hardest golf course I have ever played in my life. And, <laughs> and I'm saying this from someone who's an, better than average golfer, but not, no, no golfers where they truly want to be. And you know that probably better than anybody. But then you go in, and there's another course that we have mentioned, Gamble Sands, that you opened about five, six years ago. That is hands down maybe the most fun golf course I ever have ever played um, by myself in a competitive round with buddies where you got a $20 bet on the line or with my family, with, with my young sons who are, are picking up the game. How has your evolution of being an architect changed over the course of time? Great question. You know, I, I, I've always thought that as an architect, there's, uh, there's art involved, right? I'm not an engineer. I'm not, uh, uh, there's an evolutionary process. You're expressing yourself, your, your collaborators, the small team that I have in the, the room with me right now. And we are exploring our artistic, uh, arms and legs on it on every single project we're, we're trying new things we're exploring uh, our artistic uh, chops if you like and the ethos that you're bringing to each project is evolving from one to the next tethero was built 15, 14 years ago 2006 that course started back then in 2006 it was only five or six years after bandon dunes had opened we were enjoying a booming economy. It was prior to the 2009 recession. Real estate was flying. The major magazines were, were an inch thick. Golf Magazine probably had 100 pages in it on every issue. And every developer wanted to get as much ink as possible and as many magazines as possible with the primary objective of selling real estate, not golf memberships. So at Tethero, I had a client that said, get me as much press as possible. And the press, the golf press, wanted to talk about, back then, super difficult golf courses, resistance to scoring, defensive par, you know, highly strategic golf courses. Plus, we had Tiger Woods at the height of his power. You know, 2006, he was winning everything. You couldn't place a bet. You were placing bets on who'd come second. So golf by all accounts, was just way too easy. Tiger won everything. The pros are hitting it a mile. The magazines want to rank golf courses based on difficulty, and I obliged. I built Tedro, and it won Best New Golf Course of the Year in Golf Magazine, uh, a bunch of other awards, ranked super high. But guess what? The visitors who would come and play it would get beat to hell. They'd, they'd lose a half a dozen golf balls and say, okay, I bought the shirt. I played it. I don't think I'm going to come and play again. <laughs> and I look back at that and I thought, well, that's not what I heard at Bandon Dunes. That's not what gave me all these opportunities. So I evolved from that back in 2006 through to 2012 when we built Gamble Sands saying, let's go back to first principles. What makes golf an enduring pastime. Why is it that, that Dan wants to go there with his 14-year-old son? He doesn't want to take his son to a golf course where there's no chance of success, where his son just gets beat to hell on every single shot. He wants to go somewhere where his son can feel what makes golf fun. Why would I want to do this over and over? So Gamble Sands was that expression of 
fun. Uh, getting back to basics. You go to Scotland, where I'm from, golf courses are fun. You can go out and play the old course at St. Andrews. It's not actually that difficult to play. It's difficult to score. You, you won't make a whole bunch of birdies, but you won't lose a golf ball. There's very little rough. You won't make doubles and triples. It's not that hard to recover when you screw up. And so those are the principles that were instilled in me as a kid. And somewhere for a few years, I lost the plot a little bit. Uh, and I decided when the recession happened, I got to go back to first principles. I got to figure out what made Bandon Dunes so successful and get back to that. And Gamble Sands was, was that expression. Uh, and I had a client who really got it. The, the Gebers family don't really play golf, but they gave me their entire trust and they weren't trying to sell real estate. They were trying to build a facility that drew people in to that little valley uh, and the village of Brewster and enabled their uh, homesteading family to start to diversify a little bit out of agriculture. That was their whole raison d'etre. It wasn't to sell real estate or super expensive memberships. It was to bring people in and show them how beautiful their little corner uh, of the United States was. And that was our mission. And I, I, I think that we achieved that. I tell you what, you and the Gevers family knocked it out of the park because um, I haven't had a bad experience there yet. And I try to get there as many times as I can. Luckily enough for me, I'm about a three hour drive from, from that part of the state of Washington. So it's a little easier than some. I've always told people it's well worth the trek because it's going to be so much fun. And the, one of the other reasons I'm looking back to looking forward to getting back there either late this fall or early next year is a new trend in, in golf. And that's the short course. I know Bandon Dunes added one a couple of years back. Uh, you look at different courses across the country, they're doing short courses. That quicksands par three is, is starting to fill in nicely. What are your thoughts on the trend of par three or short courses uh, for not only someone who, like myself who loves the game, but also families learning the game? Well, the, the, when I was a kid, and this, I, this is probably true for you too, short courses and pitch and putts were really a, a poor excuse for golf experience. They're shoehorned into a corner. The superintendent didn't really take care of them. Uh, you know, the bunkers aren't raked. There isn't really a design per se. They're just kind of laid out in a field. And so there, there, there really wasn't that much fun. I would go play a, a short course, pitch and putt, par three, whatever, with my dad when I was a kid and I very quickly outgrew it thought this sucks it's not that much fun you know I, I want to go play the big course and when I was probably eight nine ten eleven my dad was like no you can't you can only go out there with me you know you can't go out there on your own you're you're not allowed uh, and so I was relegated to the, to the crappy short courses and now you know, 40 years, 50 years later, these short courses are not being shoehorned into a corner. They're being given big time billing. Uh, owners are allowing uh, architects to put them in key positions, giving them pretty decent budgets and the superintendents are paying attention. The reason is that the golfers uh, going to places like Bandon or Gamble Sands or Sand Valley they, they want to walk, they want to play golf, but playing 36 in a day is a push. 
if the weather's hot, if you've got a late morning tea time, for various reasons, 36 might not be in your, uh, in your future. You might not want to do that, but you still want to play golf. You can't hit the bar at 3 p.m. or 9 a.m., or at least I can't. So a short course, a putting course, something else to do with a club in your hand and a ball to hit is what people want to do. And so these short courses have really taken off. I mean, Pebble Beach is building one right now with Tiger Woods. Uh, the one at Gamble Sands, I hope, is going to elevate, kind of break a few more barriers. Uh, what we did there is we really went all out. We, we broke a few conventions. We tried not to build a short course that was really a miniature big course. We tried to build a short course that was really a big putting course. So it's got the wildest contours, the, the craziest stuff going on. You're On some of those holes at quicksands, you're going to be hitting the ball 20, 30 yards in the wrong direction and then getting a bounce and a roll that puts it next to the pin. Yeah, I mean, there is some wild stuff going on out there. So I hope you get to play it this fall because uh, it, it'll be in great condition. The weather up there is great. And the, when I saw it just last week, it was in – you could – you could play it already. Well, that's part of, uh, you know, the reason I love link style golf and not a lot of people truly understand link style golf. I'd like you to explain it in a minute, but you're not necessarily constricted by here's the pin, here's the green, hit it as high as you can and land it soft. You kind of look at the whole entire layout of the course and maybe aim at some, some mounding on one side of the fairway or the other, or maybe a backstop around the green. When somebody hears the term link style golf, what should truly come to mind for them? You know, you, you're touching on a hot button for me because the word link style has been so misused in the U.S. I mean, every golf course, at least for a while, wanted to say it was link style, and no one really knew what that meant. They just hung it onto a golf course along with the word championship like it meant something. Uh, what links golf is, I'm going to get you, Dan, to stop using the word style because there's nothing style about Gamble Sands. It is a links course. I mean, you could argue about the nuances of that word and say, well, you know, it's not next to an ocean. Okay, it's not next to an ocean, but if it were next to an ocean, you, there is no difference between Gamble Sands and Carnoustie. Uh, they are the same type of golf. It's rock-hard sand. The, the grass that's growing is fescue, which is exactly what grows on the old course at St. Andrews. So when you watch the open at St. Andrews and Tigers hitting a a one iron, you know, 300 yards, it's because the ball is bouncing on concrete. I mean, it's bouncing on rock hard sand and rolling out on this fescue that's just not the same as playing a parkland golf course with heavy wet soil and heavy wet grasses where the golf ball just stops. If any of your listeners, if any of them are watching the tour, you'll always hear the commentators saying, oh yeah, the greens are drying out. That's You hear that all the time, the greens are drying out. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means they're getting hard. That's what they're really saying. As soon as those surfaces get hard, those tour pro pros can't throw the ball exactly at the pin. They then have to start to think about how that ball's going to bounce and roll. Imagine a golf course where not just the greens are drying out, the whole entire golf course is drying out. 
That is what you're experiencing on a Lynx course. Gamble Sands is a perfect example of that. You can bounce a ball 150 yards down a fairway and it might not stop rolling till it passes 250 yards. You can putt from 100 yards out. The fourth hole at Gamble Sands, 130, 40 yard par three, eminently puttable off the tee. You can putt the whole entire golf hole. And so it brings a level of creativity to golf that American golfers just aren't used to. You can hit every club in the bag on every shot. You don't. You can hit. You can punch a driver fifty yards, and you can throttle a, a wedge two hundred yards, depending on how that ball is going to bounce and roll. So, for a golfer, it brings this. It, it turns golf from two dimensions to four dimensions because it's not just about trajectory, bounce, backspin, stop. Now you've got. The, the thing just becomes so dynamic and you, you well know that having played gamble as much as you have, you, you just in two dimensional golf, the golf ball goes in the air. Your mind already decides what's going to happen. You can paint the trajectory out just like shot tra tracer. And from 20, from a millisecond off the club face, the average golfer thinks to himself, well, that's a crappy shot. I'm screwed. Because they already know what's going to happen next. They know where the ball's going to go and how it's going to end up. On Lynx golf, you just don't exactly know. You hit that shot and you paint the trajectory in your mind's eye. That's just the first part. Yes. Then the ball bounces and you're like, okay, I got a good bounce. That's the second part. Well, you still don't know what's going to happen next because you don't know where it's going to finish. Now you watch the rollout and you're like, okay, it's getting better, getting better. Oh, hell, it just caught a bump. Now it's rolling the wrong way. So a shot that might have lasted five seconds on a traditional parkland course, on a Lynx course, that might last 30 seconds. I love that description because I'm just thinking back to some of the golf that I've played. I, I thought the same thing on, a, on a, what people consider a traditional, I think you call it parkland course. Yeah, the second it comes off the club, you know, okay, hey, I've got a birdie putt of 20 feet. You don't even have to look. But there's that fun kind of uh, interesting 20 seconds that's broken up to different uh, sections that you mentioned with the Lynx golf course and the shot. Like, hey, am I going to get a great kick? Am I going to get an okay kick? And then maybe it's going to curl off this mound a little bit better. I, I love hearing that description. Last question before I let you go, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, David, and we really do appreciate it. Every golfer has a dream foursome. If they could go play with anybody that in a foursome at any course in the world. Now take family out because I understand your wife is a good golfer. I believe she's on the LPGA tour or she has been, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And your dad has got a big time pass in the game of golf. Well, that's two people you took out in my dream foursome right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we can call it a, uh, you, it's a six of, so you can add those two regardless. And then your other three, who would it be? Um, would it be a player? Would it be a, a fellow architect? Um, and then what course would you want to play at if you had one dream round? Wow. Well, you know, I've, I've managed, I've been lucky enough to play a lot of golf courses uh, and a lot of golf courses that a lot of your uh, listeners might never have the good fortune to, to blag their way in as I have managed to, uh, but I still have not managed to score Augusta. 
So I've played Pine Valley and Oakmont and a whole bunch of them, but I've never played Augusta. So I'd probably want to play Augusta if you're giving me dibs on any course I want, because I can probably get on every other course today, but I still can't get on that one. So if anyone's listening who's a member, you can join my uh, sixum if you're an Augusta member. So that's my first pick. An Augusta member, uh, I don't care who he or she is. They just have to invite my other five friends. That's awesome. Uh, I got my dad and my wife uh, and the Augusta member, two more. Uh, I'd probably go Alistair McKenzie because uh, he obviously did Augusta. And who would be my sixth? I probably you, Dan. I know. I'll just add you in since you asked me the questions. There we go. Well, hey, I appreciate that. Nay, I'll second that. If any Augusta member does by chance come across this podcast, I would love to join too. Short story, real quick. I was on the cusp of getting a chance to play Augusta years ago. My rookie year, uh, I was playing for the Atlanta Hawks, and uh, I had a. I was lined up to play Peachtree Country Club uh, through a chiropractor of the Hawks. Um, with a member at Peachtree and they had told me hey as long as you don't throw a club at Peachtree or you're not going to create a ruckus there's many members at Peachtree who know people at Augusta so I would imagine we could get that done in the next year or so lo and behold a week later I was traded I still haven't played either Peachtree or Augusta but fingers crossed if it happens I'd love to join you yep yep Uh, here's hoping fingers crossed absolutely well hey David Really appreciate the time. It's been uh, a lot of fun for me because I'm your armchair quarterback when it comes to looking at a golf course and on standing on the first tee, like, why did they do that? And each time I've had a chance to play one of your golf courses, outside of a couple shots at Tethro, I've absolutely enjoyed it. It's been phenomenal. I look forward to, to, to playing Bannon again at some point in Gamble. Thanks again for joining and wish you nothing but the best in, in your future projects. My pleasure Dan thanks for having me ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.